loving you and me, every son of liberty. Hurry right away, no delay, go today. Make your daddy glad to have had such a lad. Tell your sweetheart not to pine, to be proud her boy's in line. Over there, over there, send the word, send the word over there, that the Yanks are coming, the Yanks Welcome back to the Philip K. Dick Book Club. Um, in each episode of this podcast, I look at one work of Philip K. Dick, um, or later on we'll be looking at novels, but for now we're, we're deep into the sh- early short stories of Philip K. Dick. In this episode, we'll be looking at Some Kinds of Life. Some Kinds of Life was published in Fantastic Universe in November of, of 1953. Um, it was published not under the name of, of Philip K. Dick. It was published under the name of Richard Phillips. Um, so there is, um, I guess maybe Phillips and Phil is, is where it came from. But uh, it, it was published under a pen name. And the reason for this seems to be... The reason for this seems to be that Philip Dick uh, sold another story to Fantastic Universe at the same time, and it was published in the same issue. So they didn't want to, I guess, have two stories by the same guy in the same issue. But um, that's what happened here. So it's it's also the October-November issue of 1953, which uh, if you go back and listen to Planet for Transients, that was um, also published in the same issue. You can find it in the second volume of The Collected Stories of Philip Dick, the We Can Remember For You Wholesale um, volume. So it's a nice little story. It's, it's, it's very tight thematically. It's a bit preposterous the way it unfolds. It's not really believable, but it, it's more of an allegory of, of war. Um, so it doesn't really have much of a plot. Um, it just looks at one family over, over essentially a couple generations and what happens to them because of war. So with that, I'll just go jump right into the to the story. So our we got this character, Joan Clark, woken up by her husband, Bob, and he's frantically searching for his uniform. Joan locates it, but Bob is disgusted that his uniform is wrinkled. Uh, she assures him that that she'll have it. She'll look fine. She forgot to get it dry clean, but she'll get it cleaned up and it'll be ready to go out. Bob informs his wife that his unit has been called up again six months early. Um, and the army is now calling up two units at once instead of one unit at a time. So he's going to have to go back to war. And anyone who's any Americans who survived through the Iraq war years, you know, especially if you were in the military, if you're a military family, you probably know this feeling where you have, you know, people who are in the reserves being called up, people being called up for several tours, uh, being called up for longer tours than they expected. Uh, the war on terror has been fought by a very small part of the American population and the burden of that war has been put heavily on that on those families so that's what we have going on here in Philip Dick's time you had much broader military participation you have of course had during World War II you had 15 million Americans or so serving in uniform pretty much a whole generation uh, either serving in military or serving in war industries and then you had the draft was in you know around for another 20 years after the war so it meant that you know people were going to a bigger chunk of the american population was going to serve so the vietnam war although i think troop limits were there was never more than six hundred thousand 
troops in Vietnam, or it's, it's in that ballpark. You know, it varied at different times in the war, but even at its peak, it wasn't that many. But a lot of Americans served because people served for short periods of time um, during the war as they were called up and sent home. And then, of course, you had the Korean War, which uh, many Americans served in as well. So that's maybe in Dick's mind. But this idea of, of, of the burden of war being on this one family again and again, you know, it reminds us of what we have today. But in Dick's context, I think everyone is serving in the military. This, these wars are really massive in general and affecting most people. So while I was waiting out a cicada just there, I, I did look it up. So yeah, the U.S. troop numbers maxed out at 559,000. However, almost 3 million Americans served in the war at, at some point. So, um, and remember that 600,000 only the peak troop levels. So it's kind of, it was more spread out across um, society. We could look at the numbers for, for Afghanistan and, and Iraq, but my understanding is that there's much more um, thrust on a, on a smaller number of military families. Okay, anyways, he's going off to war. That's the point here. Uh, our main character, um, really, we don't really need their names because they're just here as a device. The operation, it's their promise will only take a few days. The previous one took a week. Um, but, but the point is Bob has to leave right away just to get his uniform ready. Tommy, their son, is delighted to see his father go off to war again. He has been following the news about the war on Mars. And Bob leaves um, his family, Joan and Tommy. And they're... And I think... The kids are like getting an automated biology lesson at this time. They're they're being taught biology in their home. So everyone's homeschooled, but they got this special kind of machine or robot that teaches them. On his way to his car, uh, Joan asks Bob why they need to fight the Martians. Um, so the mother asks the father, why do we have to fight the Martians? And Bob explains what Joan already knows. So it's really for the reader's benefit. And that is the control board for the car requires Rexeroid. It's, it's some kind of made up, you know, chemical or something, which can only be found on Mars. The control board makes automated driving possible. The pace of life has picked up so much that you couldn't return to manual steering, right? It's just the cars are so fast you can't drive it, so you need manual automated driving. The previous wars were fought in Venus for access to Chiron, which is used to maintain house temperature, and Pluto for a thing called Loanite, which is using calculators. So anyways, Bob goes on to meet with his unit. Anyways, Bob dies during the war on Mars. Brian Erickson, who's the local basically draftman, he goes he goes and sees the Clark's Holmes automated kitchen and he's there to remind Tommy that he must fill out his draft card to register for service. The heavy losses on Mars mean that the draft age has to be reduced. Um, they're also fighting a war in Callisto for supplies of Gleco. Gleco is used for automated doors, ensuring that only the right people are allowed inside. Very important for security in the home. Before long, Tommy's been drafted to fight in the Callisto War, so it's a few years later. Over Jones' protest, he leaves. Tommy survives the war, but is killed in Europa in a second war for, for Trek Trektone, which is, I guess, used to run the vid screens, the kind of the televisions. Erickson is again meeting with Jones, who now Jones, the mother, is the only person in the home. And he talks about the, the wars with Neptune for Ethereum. Ethereum's for the automated newspapers that document events as they happen. So it's a really special technology. It, 
instantly tells you what's going on in the world, which is a device that Dick does later on in other stories. I think especially in um, Galactic Pot Healer, where we have books that, that write what's going on at the same time, but it's biological in that case. Here it's a technological thing. Earth is also at war with Mercury due to an uprising. Mercury is the source of amblyline, which is used in the automatic kitchens, which the Erickson, with the, with, with, the, with the Clark family, has relied on so much. Erickson tells Joan that due to all these wars, women will have to be drafted into the service unit soon. So Erickson returns to the Clark home in the midst of the Nymphite Wars with Saturn. Nymphite is used to classify people based upon their aptitudes. He explains to to Joan that this is the basic tool of modern society, and quote, as is pretty much everything else we've seen. They're all fundamental to society. We cannot live without them. Joan begins to wonder who will be left on Earth. And some years later, an archaeological survey ship from Orion arrives on Earth. A character, Natkari III, reports what he finds. There is plenty of evidence of the legendary Terrans. Their buildings and technologies are all perfectly preserved. However, the Terrans are extinct. And it's a big mystery in archaeology what happened to all the humans. So that's the story. Um, as you see, it's not much of a plot. It's really just an allegory um, of, of, about wars for resources. So analysis. Some kinds of life combines... Dick's disgust with war with his fears over automated consumer technology. So we really have these two themes combined. He's written a lot about war by this point in his career already. And he's written a lot, maybe not as much as he's written about war, but he's written a lot about automation as well. As we've talked about in other episodes, his fear about automation is, is essentially the problem that the robot will have too much autonomy. And it will begin, you'll be the master of, of, of humanity essentially. And at that point, automation is dangerous. I, if you've listened to me, you probably know that I'm, I'm kind of pro-robot. I'm, I'm for alleviating labor and, and, and getting beyond that. Um, but Dick always presents it as having a heavy, heavy cost, either ec ecological or in this case, in terms of the wars required to sustain these technologies. And it's true to a degree that like some of the rare earth minerals in you know, like things like our cell phones are found like in just a few places of the earth. And we could conceive of resource wars coming down the pike uh, in our own lifetimes, perhaps, because we are becoming so dependent on things that maybe the, the, the you know, the resources for them are, are rarer and harder to, you know, harder to locate. So in this story, Earth sends out most of its population in a series of resource wars all across the solar system. Now, who are they fighting? It's not really clear. They're, it seems to me they're fighting colonists who kind of evolve their own societies over time, but then choose to defend their resources from the core. And so they break away. They, they're presented more as like rebellions against Earth authority. Um, but so they're not like aliens. It doesn't seem to be to me anyways. But first you got the men, then the children and then the women in order are eliminated in these wars. It's very implausible, right? No economy, even with massive mechanization, could sustain all of its people in arms, right? Even the United States today, most powerful military ever in Earth history, you know, I think it's only like 2%, you know, are in the military and, or in the army reserves even. With everything else being automated, though, 
why hasn't warfare been replaced by, by robots? It's not really explained. But this is a minor quibble. It's, it's a great allegory. It's a great, it's, I don't want to, I hesitate to call it a story. But it's really about the absurdity of much of the 1950s consumer culture as well. This requiring of constantly updating our household technologies with the newest devices and, 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 and gadgets. But also here, there's another story about the relationship between the individual and the state. So there's a lot going on in this little brief story. It's only 10 pages, but a lot going on. Now, what makes the wars for resource described in this story so ridiculous is that the consumer technologies that are required are mostly ridiculous from our point of view. The logic behind the the war with Mars may be the one that makes the most sense, right? Maybe it's true you can't go back to manual steering you know, with that. Bob says, quote, we could 10 years ago, but 10 years ago we were driving less than 100 miles per hour. No human being could steer at the speeds those days. We can't go back to manual steering without slowing down our pace. Sweetheart, it's 90 miles from here to town. You really think I could keep my job if I had to drive the whole way at 35 miles an hour? End quote. Right? And, you know, we, we probably couldn't go back to horses. First of all, we don't have enough horses. Right? We don't raise as many horses as we used to. There's not enough farriers to shoe the horses. You know, I don't know if the roads are proper for horses. Probably not. So we don't have that. You know, we, we're we stuck with cars. And, you know, maybe we can have automated cars or more energy efficient cars. But our whole infrastructure is tied to the automobile. So the idea of going back is tough. Now, I you know, the thing like the autom automatic doors and the instant newspapers, those don't seem as crucial to our life as perhaps transportation does. But Dick's idea here is maybe we should rethink how essential some of these technologies really are. There's a really careful criticism of suburbia and consumer culture in this story. The Glucko war against Callisto is justified by Tommy by saying, if we lose Callisto, we'll have to go back to carrying door keys like our grandfather's. Right there, Dick's being kind of ridiculous. Um, on purpose, he's trying to present this war as completely superficial. The story is written in a post-war period when middle-class consumers rapidly filled their homes with automated technologies and consumer goods, such as dishwashers and washing machines. The irksome part of his critique is that automated door openers is not the logical extension of a washing machine. Right? I... I haven't seen homes with automated doors. Uh, in Taiwan, there are most of the doors out are outside and businesses are automated. And I think that has more to do with the fact that people use so much air conditioning here and they don't want to constantly make sure the door's closed. So they all have these automated doors that they'll open and close. Sometimes you got to push them, but often you just walk up to them and they open. They don't keep out the riffraff as the doors in this story do. So it's not an implausible technology, right? But you know, homes don't really have all these automated doors, really. Maybe rich people have them. I don't know. You know, I'm not rich. But almost everyone in the industrial world has a washing machine or chooses to use a public washing machine. And the why is because it's really hard to wash hands close by hand. It was one of the most odious gendered forms of labor, you know, we've ever had. You know, washing day really was washing day at a point. You know, it took a whole day to wash the clothes. You had to wash it by hand on a washing board. And maybe you go to like a, a kind of a 18th century, 19th century life kind of amusement attraction. And you might have 
people showing off what life was like in the 19th century. They might even show you how to wash clothes with a washboard, right? It might be fun to do that, but no one wants to actually wash their family's load of laundry that way, right? This has alleviated a lot of really horrible labor, right? So I, I think some of these technologies actually are necessary and useful. And I think, yeah, we shouldn't be fighting wars on Callisto to sustain, you know, washing machines. Thankfully, we don't have to do that. But I don't think we should have just a, such a broad-based critique of in-home consumer technologies because some of them really do make life easier. And, you know, particularly for women, a lot of these technologies have saved labor that was often gendered, especially in the 1950s when the story was written. Right. Now, the way Dick presents this trend of labor-saving technologies leads me to suspect that maybe he didn't wash his own clothes by hand very often. Now, on the other hand, though, when we think about the fact that some of the metals we use in our cell phones are available maybe only like in Nigeria, I've heard that one, there's one metal that's pretty hard to get, and it's really only available right like on the, the habitat of most of, of the gorillas in the world today. So if we were actually able to exploit these resources fully, we'd probably wipe out the habitat of the gorillas. And the possibility of future resource wars is very real, right? We're, we have people talking about possible water wars, um, but perhaps certain wars for access to metals uh, might be waiting for us. I, I wouldn't be surprised at all. In fact, I think the, the video game Fallout has the resource war as the backdrop of that story. Why there was a nuclear war in the first place was essentially a war for resources. Our tendency to see contraptions that we use to do without as absolute necessities is quite right, I would say. And Dick is right to point this out. I grew up without cell phones. I grew up having to call people, um, call parents. I mean, one of the interesting things about cell phones, it seems to me, is you know when, when people have cell phones, they can call directly whoever they want to call. Um, and as a kid, though, if I wanted to call a friend, I had to call the house. It means I had to get Pat. You now sometimes my friend would pick up, but often I would have to talk to the parent. I'd have to get through the parent, usually the mother, sometimes the father, and I'd have to talk with them for a minute. Right? Why am I calling? Who am I? Oh, hi. How are you doing? And, you know, we'd have this little back and forth. Right? It's you know, and it was a ritual that we went, a social ritual, and it was useful. It taught certain skills, right? I wonder if kids growing up today, because they can text directly or they can call directly their friends, don't have to go through this and, and maybe they have a different interaction with the parents of their friends than, than I remember. But the point is, you know, people see cell phones as absolutely crucial now, right? I remember when I first broke down and got a cell phone, you know, it was, you know, it was I was told by someone that you got to have one. It's ridiculous that you don't have one. How can we contact you if you don't have a cell phone? Something like that. It's pretty odd to see someone in Taiwan, for instance, without a cell phone, right? If you get on a bus or the subway, people are always looking on the cell, you know, of all ages, looking at cell phones. Yet it's not a revolutionary labor-saving device like the washing machine. So, you know, I, I think we really could do without the cell phones, as useful as they might be. Uh, for people, I'd rather give, if I had to choose, give the washing machine or give the cell phone, I'd give up the cell phone in a minute, right? Um, 
So, anyways, give let me know what you think about this issue. It, you know where you come down on it. So, I think we need to be a little bit more. I do think we need to be a bit more thoughtful about what technologies we allow invade our lives. I think we need to be a little more reflective and philosophical about that. And we need to not just say, wow, look at the cool stuff they can do. We should say, well, how's this going to affect our lives, right? The television, you know, certainly did change family life in significant ways. It changed how we got our media. It changed how we got entertainment. It, a lot of things that maybe once happened outside the home started to happen inside the home a lot more. It changed dinner time. Some people complain that, you know, people don't, families don't eat together anymore because everyone has a TV in their room or whatever. Uh, in the 1950s, there was usually just one television, but maybe you could eat around it. Uh, and that was kind of a family time, maybe watching a game show or, or some sitcom. That might be family time, but it maybe is a different nature than maybe going to the ball game. Now, the state is always present in the story of some kinds of life, and it needs to be analyzed as well. The government is totally undemocratic. Leaders are chosen based on a job selection process. If you've seen the TV show Futurama, they have a career chip where a machine determines what you're best at and implants you then with the career chip. You have something like that going on. Um, it's just mentioned as one of the reasons for a war, but everyone is given the job they're best at, and there's a process for figuring that out. Now, at the local level, the most important interaction with the state is through the sector organizer, who's essentially like the draft agent. He's, the he's a friendly face, but his primary job is to ensure that each eligible draftee has registered and goes off to war when necessary. So basically, the government controls your life. Uh, they can send you to war. They can send you to kill or to die at will, uh, as well as tell you basically what your job in society is going to be. The relationship Dick describes throughout the story is deeply exploitative and likely an extension of his fears of how things were going uh, in the U.S. and across the world during the Cold War. Now, one thing to say about, I guess, the when, you, when we look at 20th century history, when we look at the historical context of Dick and we look at our place as readers of Philip Dick, now maybe older readers might have a different point of view on this, but you know, people like me who grew up in the 80s, can look back and say, well, it's obvious that democracy won out in the 20th century. Right? That's the history of the 20th century, is the victory of democracy, the victory of free markets, the victory of capitalism. Right? One of the, I, was, I think I was like 13 or something when the Soviet Union, you know, I was a little bit older than that, but you know, 14 or so when the Soviet Union collapsed. Right? So for most of my, my whole adult life, I, I lived in this post-Cold War world. And that's one way we could look at 20th century history is just the inevitable victory of democracy over first fascism and militarism and then over communism. Great. But if you live in Dick's time, I don't think things can be so certain. This, the Soviet Union was a real external threat to the United States, whether that was real or imagined. It, it seemed to be to people in Dick's generation. And look at a place like Europe at the time of World War II. Right. Most of the nations in, in 1939 in Europe were authoritarian, some variant of dictatorship or authoritarianism, with the exception of France, which was seen pretty much universally as a failing republic, and Great Britain, which was a monarchy and seen as kind of old fashioned. Germany went fascist. Much of Eastern Europe went fascist. Austria did. Italy. Spain. I think Portugal even had an authoritarian government for a while. Russia was was communist. 
there was no there was very little democracy in Europe you know throughout most of the first half of the the century you either had monarch in 1900 you had monarchies throughout Europe and you know 1950 you've progressed from monarchies to right wing or in the exception of Russia left wing authoritarianism and why is there any guarantee in looking at a 1953 that yeah democracy is going to win Right. You could even say that democracy won World War II, really, if you're on look honestly on it, because the Soviet Union was the main victor in that war. They did most of the fighting and they were you know, the ones who really broke the back of, of Nazi Germany, another authoritarian system. So I don't think we Dick can look at the world and say, oh, the future is going to be democracy and free markets and, and a liberal society. I'm not sure about that. And. Certainly, you see in science fiction these fears of authoritarianism reemerging. So that's my thoughts on it. I think Dick's vision of the state here is pretty typical of what he presents in his stories. But I think we need to contextualize it in a world in which the victory of, of liberal society and democracy is not guaranteed at all. Well, that does it for um, Some Kinds of Life, a really important story. Certainly, even though it's more allegorical than a story. Uh, a lot here about labor-saving technologies and the benefit. It's got its benefits and its costs. Resource wars, uh, the human costs of the technologies we use. What are they? Uh, what is the, the future of free societies? Are, are we going to sacrifice our liberties, our freedoms for the ease and conveniences of technologies? Um, let me know what you think about these things. Uh, please rate, subscribe, share. If you can leave a review on iTunes, that'd be really helpful to me. Um, but with that, I'll let you go. Um, we're nearing the end of 1953. Just a few more episodes, and we'll be able to move on to 1954. And I think at some point in there, I'm going to look at another one of the early Philip Dick novels, probably Cosmic Puppets or The Man Who Japed. So you can look forward to that. But for now, I'll sign off. Thank you so much for listening, and I'll see you with the next Philip Dick short story. Over there, over there.